Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, and thanks for listening to the Big Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the United States' largest speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or a speaker, get together on SpeakerMatch.com and learn about the new world of virtual speaking, which has really taken off in the, uh, in the wake of this entire global pandemic. And that's uh, what we're primarily going to talk about on today's podcast, the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch. Um, we've got some insights from somebody that really knows what he's talking about. And we've been collecting your questions in our chat room, and we've got a bunch of them. If you'd like to be a part of the show, we'd love to hear from you as well at 516-418-5635. Rear Admiral Dr. James Galloway, former Assistant U.S. Surgeon General. He's a cardiovascular medical doctor, public health expert, Longtime director of the Office of Health System Collaboration for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Um, he has also served as senior federal officer on health for pandemic influenza and bioterrorism for the Department of Homeland Security. And he has been kind enough to give us a few minutes to talk about uh, this new world that we all find ourselves in. Dr. Galloway, thanks for making time. And, and before we get started, I want to ask, are, are you and your family safe and healthy? Thank you so much, Burke. Yes, indeed, we are. We're locked down uh, in in Tucson, Arizona, and and feeling uh, safe and secure and healthy. And, and I hope the same is true for your family. We are, and uh, and I have to tell you, you know, there there are nerves on edge all over the place. I, I ventured out to the grocery store yesterday, and and for the first time, I saw more than half the folks in the grocery store wearing face masks. And I'd like to start with that. I've got a lot of questions from our listeners. I hope that's okay. But uh, in the last 24 hours, there seems to have been uh, a big shift in, in the public discourse on, on face masks and, and gloves and whether uh, folks should wear them. And, and I, I have a real concern if, if we all start gobbling those up, that our healthcare workers who really need those, those face masks and gloves uh, and, and other personal protective equipment may not be able to get them. So uh, from a guy that really knows this stuff inside and out, what's your take on that? I completely agree with you, Burke. Uh, you know, I think that the healthcare workers right now are the stars, uh, the heroes of, of this entire battle, which is, is actually a war. It's a national war. And, and these folks are the, the front lines. And so we've got to be absolutely sure that, that they are, prepared for battle, that they have the equipment that they need for several reasons. One, simply so they aren't infected and we lose our healthcare workers who are, who are taking care of us, but sure. secondly, so they don't transmit the disease between patients. Um, so, so in response to your question, yes, indeed, I think that we have to make sure the healthcare workers are outfitted completely first. Then once we're, we're sure that, that we can supply them, the, the fact that up to 25% of folks with coronavirus may be asymptomatic, either before symptoms develop or simply without symptoms, the use of face masks by the general public may well be wise to, to block transmittal because that's, that's really what they're for. They're really for 
stopping people who are ill from transmitting the disease to others. Now, it can be argued that there's some benefit as well uh, to wearing them even if you're not ill. As we know, most of the virus is, is transmitted by droplets. And right. certainly if you're wearing a mask and, and someone coughs um, and a droplet comes your direction and lands on the mask instead of lasting, landing in your, your lungs, that's a good thing. Even though these type of masks that we're talking about are not 100% effective, they can certainly be helpful. So having said that, and in light of, of trying to, to make sure that I think they're called N95s, is that right, the surgical masks that, that doctors and nurses use? Um, would those, a bandana or are, something yes. something else, a homemade uh, uh, mask of some kind, would that do the job? So the N95 um, is, is the uh, uh, really the professional mask that, is fitted to your face so that there are no leaks around the edges um, that have very finely woven masks to, to stop the virus. And those are primarily the ones that the healthcare workers should be outfitted with. When we're talking right. about masks for the general public, oftentimes we're talking about simple, those, those blue surgical masks that tie in the back or, or uh, even construction masks that, that some people are using. Um, and, and those may have the same type of um, uh, health benefit that uh, uh, I was speaking of earlier. They certainly aren't 100%, but they can, they can help if there's droplets of material that's coming your direction, for instance, and they can certainly help block you from spreading the disease to others. Fair enough. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up, the construction masks. The very first time that, that I thought, you know, this is really going to be an issue, um, as we talked about off the air, I live in the Washington, D.C. metro, and I popped into the, the Home Depot in my neighborhood in Reston, Virginia, uh, the first weekend in March, which now seems like a lifetime ago. Um, and there was a big sign over the counter that said, we're out of construction masks. We don't know when we're going to get any more. And I thought, hmm. That's not a good sign, but, uh, you know, that is the world we live in. Uh, Rear Admiral James Galloway, retired, is a former U.S. Surgeon General. He's our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to tread into some dangerous water a little bit here because you, more than, than anyone else that we've had on the Big Time Talker podcast, knows the ins and outs of the government's response. I mean, you were the CDC for many years, and, uh, senior federal officer for uh, pandemic influenza. So w- without uh, uh, me casting dispersions, I'll let you. Could the U.S. have responded more quickly <laughs> on this? And, and, and how and what can we do about it? And that's a lot to unpack, but, but I, I want to get the, the straight skinny from somebody that knows. Well, thank you. Thank you, Burke. I, I think that, you know, there's many things that, that we could have done uh, more promptly that would have uh, uh, saved lives. Um, you know, the, the evidence that we've seen is, is pretty clear. The spread of this virus can be greatly reduced if governments act early, aggressively, and intelligently. Unfortunately, our response in the U.S. Um, has, has not laid engagement by our nation and, and somewhat confusing messages have uh, left us continually trying to catch catch up. 
thing, countries and, and cities like South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan all have controlled the outbreak pretty well early on by testing early and often, using isolation and quarantines when needed based on the results of the testing, and communicating simple, clear messages. Remember that our public health system has numerous successes uh, that people don't generally hear about because they're successful. Right. But even those, even those you do, like, uh, like Ebola, a much more deadly disease, although with lower communicability, um, was completely controlled when the, when the United States and World Health Organization leadership and, and collaboration along with the rest of the globe got together. We don't think much about it because it didn't develop into a major threat around the world because of the global collaboration and leadership. So as that, someone uh, who's been in the middle yeah, of this, ahead. then let me, let me ask you, Dr. Galloway, and, and Dr. James Galloway, our guest today, former assistant U.S. Surgeon General, um, when you armchair quarterback this thing and you look back, where did it all break down? Well, let's, let's review. I, that's a great question, Burke. And let me, let me start um, with the timeline. I mean, I, I, I think how we got here is, is uh, uh, very eye-opening. You know, I think there was some garbled messaging early on, and there's uh, dismissing concerns of a, of a number of experts. So on December 31st, the World Health Organization was informed of a new disease in China, December 31st. On January 8th of this year, an outbreak of unidentified and possibly new viral disease in central China was reported with the first case on that day outside of China and Thailand. The World Health Organization on January 8th called for active monitoring and preparedness around the globe. This sent alarms throughout Asia in advance, particularly of the concerns relating to the Lunar New Year travel season. And Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Thailand, and the Philippines were already contemplating quarantine zones and, scanning and, and beginning to scan travelers from China for signs of fever or other pneumonia-like symptoms that may indicate a new disease, possibly linked to the wild animal market in Wuhan. CDC was notified and was monitoring the situation. To mid-January, the National Security Council was notified and sounded initial alarms to the, to the White House and the Domestic Security Council. In mid-January, China locked down an entire city of Wuhan a major and significant event causing major concerns among epidemiologists and public health experts throughout the United States. And there were multiple articles from well-recognized healthcare professionals like Scott Gottlieb and Tom Frieden, my old boss, were published strongly advocating for aggressive interventions. In January 21st, we had our first identified COVID-19 case in the U.S., Throughout the, the intervening January and February, the administration and supporters were blatantly denying the evidence and making jokes about it being simply a bad case of the flu or even, in some cases, a hoax. This was followed by acknowledgement and statements of how, through the administration's actions, we're winning the battle and then stating in January that, in fact, we're on top of it. Even as recently as February 24th, 
the president said the coronavirus is very much under control in the United States. Stock market is starting to look very good to me. On March 6th, a quote was, we shut it down and we stopped it. On March 11th, more than two months after scientists at the World Health Organization called for action, our president gave his first speech acknowledging the potential seriousness of the coronavirus, and on March 13th, he declared a national emergency. Finally now, recognizing the seriousness of this from a health and an economic perspective, the CDC and our remarkable federal physicians and public health experts have been unmuzzled and begun to speak out and intervene. Thankfully, the experts have now come to the table and are being recognized and respected. So I think we've, we've come a long ways, and, and finally our direction is set on course, uh, albeit late, but on course, and there's, there is some good news as we move forward. I could use some good news. Could you share some of that with us? Sure. So we know, for instance, that um, it appears we're starting to win the battle a bit. You know, there's a company that makes, um, that makes smart thermometers and collects the data from all over the country. And those smart thermometer results they have about 160,000 of these results from all over the country, um, are, appear to be falling. So those temperatures across the country appear to be falling, which is good news, suggesting that the average temperature is starting to fall, meaning that, that uh, the diseases may be ramping down. The second piece of good news is that Seattle, the first hot spot, is beginning to see evidence that the early implemented containment strategies are beginning to pay off. Deaths are not rising as fast in other parts of the country, and the hospitals haven't been overwhelmed so far. Certainly this information, while preliminary, offers some real hope to us that that we're beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. All right, fair enough. Dr. James Galloway, our guest today, former assistant U.S. Surgeon General. He's a medical doctor. And uh, Rear Admiral retired, and uh, boy, we've got I've got questions just flooding in here. We're going to try to get to as many of your questions as we can on the, in the chat room today. And if you'd also like to call in at five one six four one eight five six three five on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Um, I've got a, a, a chat room message here, a, a text message that pushes back a little bit on what, what you had to say, and that is, and I'm paraphrasing the the fellow who's who sent the message in but basically the white house is getting expert advice from all sides so isn't it possible that they got some bad advice and that's why uh, they played down the severity of this all i can say to that is certainly that's possible uh it's possible that they got some bad advice from somewhere but i can i can tell you from the public health experts that, that I work with, people were very concerned early on. I mean, when, when China locked down an entire city of millions of people, everybody took attention and, and recognized that there was something serious going on, even if we didn't know exactly what it was at the point. But I can't deny that there's certainly uh, uh, folks that gave our administration bad advice. That's certainly possible. 
Are China's numbers now accurate? There's been some reports that that they have actually downplayed the severity as as much as as it sounded scary to begin with. There was much worse there than than we know. Well, we don't, and that's exactly the point. We don't know for sure. Um, certainly, the actions they took. I mean, closing down an entire city was was a massive, major action that suggested that that there were various serious and, and compelling uh, concerns that they had at the time. We don't know for sure if we can trust the numbers or not. Um, certainly, uh, uh, that's, an, that's an open question. Nevertheless, it certainly appears that through the isolation and the, and the, the uh, uh, quarantining and the, and the efforts that they have made, that they seem to be turning the corner in at least in that in that city of Wuhan and other parts of the country. Did the White House make the right call in in their early stopping of of travel uh, from China, and and was that enough? Excellent question. Um, yes, they did. Um, in general, in public health theory and. Um, the idea is once you have the disease within the, the continental U.S., that stopping travel from other countries won't make much of an impact um, because of the hardship it puts on the people, the Americans in China trying to get home and so forth, uh, and the expense of it. Nevertheless, when you have an outside area such as Wuhan, China, that has large numbers, it makes sense to stop the stop the travel to the United States from that country, in, in my opinion. And the the one recommendation I have is it should have been done much earlier. Dr. James Galloway, our guest today, former U.S. Assistant Surgeon General. We've got a caller on the line with a question. Hi, ma'am. Go ahead. You're on with Dr. James Galloway. Hi. Um, hi, Dr. Galloway. A quick question. I live in a rural community. Um, how is this affecting rural communities? Oh, well, it's a great question. Small towns, rural communities. I saw, Doctor, that, that you have a background uh, working on Indian reservations. I am from a town of 3,000 people. The caller wants to know what's going to happen in, in small-town America. I, I think that's an excellent question. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned. So we know in rural communities, uh, uh, obviously everyone's aware that, that people are more spread out, the population is less. But what we also know is in rural communities, there's a greater proportion of high-risk individuals. Folks are older. There's a higher percentage with chronic disease, even multiple chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cancer. And they often have lower social determinants of health parameters, such as uh, le- there's less wealth, there's poor communities, there's less available infrastructure, health care, and less economic opportunity, in fact, less opportunities in general. One analysis that looked at the general flu, not coronavirus, but the flu, found that in rural areas there was a 60% higher death rate. Um, and there, there's reasons for this, which include less accessible health care. Now, if you look at the hospitals in these rural communities, there are many, they're, they're substantially fewer, more dispersed, less equipped, and with limited funds. In short, they're underfunded, understaffed, undersupplied, and often unprepared. 
There's limited supplies and beds, personal protective equipment, ventilators. Even the coronavirus, even before the coronavirus hit, uh, there was a hospital crisis in America. About 60 million people, almost one in five people, live in rural areas and depend on local hospitals for care. But 119 rural hospitals have closed since 2010, 18 uh, last year, and eight so far this year due to the multiple challenges facing these hospitals, which include, of course, decreasing patient numbers as we increase outpatient therapy and increasing costs and decreasing reimbursements. So there's fewer hospitals, fewer staff, and they're less, less prepared. And then, you know, to think just a second about Indian reservations, many are extremely rural. And um, American Indians have shocking disparities compared to the United States, along with the fact that the government spends less on health care for them than they do for beneficiaries and other federal programs. I won't go into detail unless I'm asked about that with the, the Indian Health Service and American Indian tribes. But one of the things that concerns me related to rural health is that once we see our metropolitan areas um, start to decline in numbers, once we see these vast numbers start to decline, people are going to start having themselves on the back and declaring that we're winning. But that's just about the time when the rural areas are going to be going to be more engaged uh, with coronavirus. And that's about the time when we're going to see more rural deaths and, and more rural disease. And the, the difficulty is, the unfortunate difficulty of it is that there's less people in rural communities. So the numbers for the nation will continue to decline while in rural communities, it'll be going up. So I actually have a plea related to rural communities and that's that we have to have a leadership group that's focused on rural America for planning and implementing of appropriate funding and public health measures from a national level. Um, I think that you know, we'll, we'll all get through this. There'll certainly be casualties along the way. We'll all get through this. And, and I think that it's, it's up to us as a nation of Americas, of Americans to, to really combat this. We must follow the recommendations of the president. We must follow the recommendations of the CDC guidelines, but it's really our patriotic duty to our nation. We must fight it as a unified nation, one nation. And whether we're metropolitan, rural, American Indian, black, white, or brown, we have to become united in this effort. So it's coming to small towns. And, and caller, thank you so much. It's coming at some point, and, and don't let the decline in numbers uh, surprise you. Dr. James Galloway, former U.S. Assistant Surgeon General, our guest today on the Big Talker bo- uh, podcast. All right, let me burn through a couple more of these questions that are coming in. Will warm weather slow down the virus? We don't know that yet is a, is a blunt answer. Um, okay. It's unclear. It may uh, have some impact, um, but the concern is that we'll see waves uh, so that, such that after this first wave, even if warm weather does slow it down, slow down the trans- transmission, when the fall comes, there are still many people who, who are, are not immune to the virus 
and would be uh, uh, eligible to get it again. So we could see uh, several waves of, of coronavirus through the year. All right. Here's another good question. I think if, if you get the virus, will you be less likely to catch it again by building up immunities? That's our hope. Um, we have uh, the studies are just beginning now with the antibody studies to, to look at that, but behaves like most other coronaviruses, uh, such as the flu viruses. Yes, that appears to be true. Um, as long as there's no mutations or other transformations of, of the virus. So the current thinking is that if you have the, the coronavirus now or you've had it in the recent past, that more than likely you will be immune for at least the remainder of this year. And would the hope then playing that forward be that eventually in 18 months or two years or whenever a, a vaccine uh, is built up, you go in and you get an annual COVID-19 shot and, and uh, or coronavirus shot, and, and you're in much better stead moving forward. Is that sort of the long-term thinking from the CDC? Absolutely. The, the you know, the, the absolute uh, end for this will be when we can't, when we don't transmit it uh, and, and, hopefully when we don't get the disease and the, and the vaccine is the most promising opportunity for us to end this, this uh, scourge that we're facing now. Dr. Galloway, I spoke with a, a close friend who's uh, works at a research hospital in St. Louis and uh, paraphrasing uh, Greg, he said that as, as horrible as this is, thank God that it's not as deadly as many other viruses like Ebola, that, that you know, it spreads and is, is incredibly contagious, but it is not nearly as lethal. It's almost as if it's a, a, a starter pandemic. But that leads to another question. So is America prepared for something even worse than this? If this cripples us and brings us to our knees, what happens if something comes along that has a, a 20%, 30%, 40% mortality rate? Well, those are good questions. So your friend is exactly right. You know, this is very contagious. On the other hand, it has a pretty low mortality overall, and, and we believe it's, it's somewhere around 1%, 1 to 2% in general at this time is the a, is a current thinking. Um, we were to be faced with a larger, more, more lethal form of a virus, it would even be more concerning, obviously. No, um, as, as we've shown so far, we're not prepared, and, and it would be very hard to be prepared for such a large uh, pandemic with a high mortality. Um, you know, even the national stockpile was not developed for a national emergency. It was developed for tornadoes and floods and, and local emergencies for the most part, and to be able to, to respond to multiple emergencies at once. But a national pandemic is... is uh, uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to to stock enough supplies for, you know, 350 million people. So it, we are not protected. We are not uh, prepared for a higher mortality pandemic. However, you can bet that after this, we'll be much better prepared. So it could be a, a, a bit of a blessing in, in, you know, if you look at it from a glass half full standpoint, man, we're almost out of time. I'm going to try to get these last couple of questions in for all the folks who are, are sending them in to the Big Time Talker podcast. 
Will this come back again in the fall? Yeah, I think I think we talked about that a little bit, and there's a, a very good chance it will. There's a very good chance that that there'll be uh, waves of this, uh, decreasing waves, but waves of this that continue. Uh, uh, hopefully not, but potentially through the year. How long will most Amer- oh this is a good one? How long will most Americans be under the stay-at-home orders? How long do you expect we'll all be hunkered down? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, because there's a political aspect to it as well as an economic aspect in addition to the public health aspect. So, so I can't really answer that. Um, if I had to take a wild guess, um, I would say at least into May, um, uh, mid-May at least, uh, trying to balance the economic, political, and, and public health Uh, needs in each of those arenas. Dr. James Galloway, former Assistant U.S. Surgeon General, uh, Admiral, former CDC official, you've given us some straight talk today, and it hasn't always been pleasant talk, but it's appreciated to get some real honest knowledge from somebody that knows what's happening out there. This story, as you know, is very fluid. Would you consider coming back to talk with us again uh, as new developments happen? Certainly. I'd be honored to do so. Appreciate that very much. Dr. James Galloway, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Wherever you are, whatever you do, stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to our guest today, Admiral James Galloway, MD. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening, everybody.